Well, our topic today is hopeful holiness. Not a despairing holiness, but hopeful holiness. And the reason for that will become apparent. But you appreciate, I think, by now what we're doing in this series of five, um, that we're looking at the promises that, uh, if you like, the covenant promises that God has made. First in the garden, not strictly a covenant promise, but a promise made to Adam and Eve. And then a promise made to Noah, which was was called a covenant. And then the covenants of promise given to uh, Israel, together with the Mosaic covenant. And um, we're looking at those uh, five um, promises, large, if you like, um, uh, what's the word, landscape promises. You know, they actually set out a whole scene uh, when they are made. Uh, And uh, so that, that gives us a framework for just reading all of the individual promises that we so treasure when we come across them in various parts of the Old and the New Testament. So it's a framework for understanding all of the promises of God. So today... Um, the promises um, we look at are often those that help us with our daily life. I will be with you. <laughs> um, no trial has taken you. When I learned as a teenager, 1, no tr- 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no trials taken you, but such as is common to man. And God's faithful, who won't suffer you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. But, uh, incredible promises, really, aren't they? And uh, why wouldn't you want want to know them and to live by them. So a lot of them are to do with our daily life and, and getting on. But this promise we look at now is a promise that God will make us holy. That's not bad, is it? That is like himself. God has surrounded uh, the requirements that we be holy with a promise to write his law on our hearts. That's what they called the new covenant, which Jesus fulfills when he's sits down and has the Passover feast with his disciples, said this is the blood of the new covenant. So he's referring to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And God makes his promise. Now we'll look at that just a little bit further down, but that's where we're heading. In other words, uh, it will be what he does uh, that makes the difference. I think the word is missing there. It will be what he does that makes the difference uh, in us being holy people. Uh, he's the true Father, providing the confidence we need as we venture into this new life. I picture a, a, a mum or a dad uh, with their, I don't know what age they are, eight, nine months and through to a, a, over a year old and they're taking their first steps and, you know, the kid sort of gets up eager to be at it and um, uh, maybe uncertain, but the parents are sure they're going to make it. You'll work, you'll walk, you'll be all right. Uh, can you feel the the anticipation of the parents and the confidence of the parents and the child may be able to borrow that confidence. Now that's where we're at. We've got a con- father who is confident we're going to make it. So he's given us a promise. I'll write my law in your heart. Uh, it's quite something, isn't it? And we'll see more of that as we go through. This must be the best of all promises. It's the one chance we have to be what we really are, made in God's image. If God's not sure that I can make it, I'm sure not so certain. Got enough evidence to prove to the contrary. If we're not reflecting God, every part of us is working hard to be something we're not built for. But we can ask God, and here's you know a couple of promises that I've just found in the New Testament. One Thessalonians five. Um, he says we can ask God to sanctify young Christians and keep them so they'll be entirely blameless for when Christ returns. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? 
Um, sometimes we just gloss over these things, but he's making, basically, he's saying to the uh, Thessalonians, um, in the midst of other things that he says, for example, chapter 4 and verse 7 of uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 7, he says, uh, God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, now make sure you love it. I mean, you can speak very straightly to them about getting their act together and uh, living well. But then he comes to chapter 5 at the end of his letter, and here's how he really sees it. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the promise. He who calls you is faithful. He'll do it. How about that? That's a bit different from the, are you committed to the Lord? Are you going to make it this week? How are you going to go? Do you, do you understand the difference? It's just chalk and cheese, isn't it? When you're putting back people back on themselves, this one you're actually knowing the promise that God has made concerning our holiness. And uh, same in 1 Corinthians now, here's a, here's a letter, you would expect a little bit of um, remonstrance about us now, I hope to hear better of you next time. You know, it would be a good way to finish a letter, wouldn't it? I hope to hear better of you next time. <laughs> because uh, in one sense they, they deserve that. But here at the beginning of his letter, he says, uh, verse 7, So you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will, promise, sustain you to the end. Guiltless? Really? In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I was very helped one time when I was doing some studies on predestination and to find how the theologians come at it and to discover that the, the, the balance, if you like, between the um, warnings about not making it and the certainty of making it is that the warnings that you won't are part of the certainty that you will. God's sure that we're going to make it, so he gives us a good heavy thump of warning. I don't know. Do you get frightened sometimes about your own behaviour? Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? That's part of getting there. Um, and um, <laughs> thank God for that. All right. Um, so uh, there's a couple of examples from Paul uh, about how this promise actually works out in practice. So if we're going to be godly, that is, trust Him to become like Him. We will need to know that there's something, this is something God has promised to do. And this is illustrated dramatically with Peter. Now, we talked about him last week, so I won't go on about that very much. But simply, um, he thought he was going to be really great, and the Lord contradicts him. But he also says, I've prayed for you, that your faith will not fail, which is kind of a promise, isn't it? I prayed for you. If Jesus prays that his faith won't fail, does Jesus pray according to the will of God? Does the will of God get answered in a prayer? Yeah. So it's effectively a promise, isn't it? You'll make it, Peter. I wonder if he thinks about that when he looks at Jesus. I wonder if Jesus thinks about that when he looks at Peter and Peter goes out and weeps. They must have been pretty profound tears. I don't think they were just tears of remorse. I think they were tears of self-discovery of who is who in this relationship. Jesus knows everything. 
He was right. What about his prayer? Yeah. And Jesus even then doesn't leave it to chance. He says, go and tell my disciples and Peter that I want to meet them. He doesn't even rely on them to respond to the call of disciple. But he makes sure Peter gets there. It's marvellous, isn't it? Uh, What actually goes on, if you actually read the story. And uh, God's promises are fulfilled. And after the resurrection, Peter knows himself better and he knows he loves Christ. That's something, isn't it? His holiness is dependent on Christ's prayer and promise. We fail even often, but because Christ, God makes a promise to keep us, we get up and we make progress. Now, Jesus fulfills God's promise. We come back to this Jeremiah 31. God fulfills God's promise to write his law on our hearts. This is the covenant that I'll make with them in this days, these days, says the Lord. I'll write my law in their hearts then, and, and on this, I write my law in their hearts and they will uh, keep my commandments. Uh, words to that effect. Um, and uh, writing the law in our hearts means God's commands will become what we want to do. I mean, if you just say write law in your heart, well, you know the contrast is, first of all, that it was written on stone for a start. But the other side of it is that in Jeremiah 17.1, in the earlier part of the book, um, Jeremiah says, the sin of Israel is engraved on the heart of Israel with a pen of iron. I'm not quite sure what that actually looks like when you get it engraved with a pen of iron, but it sounded pretty severe. In other words, it's pretty deep. And now God is saying to people on whom sin is written with a pen of iron that he's going to write his law on their hearts. There's going to be a change of inscription in the very seat of their being. That's something, isn't it? That where sin was, God's law will be. Uh, That's an incredible promise. Um, Almost, you'd say, immoral, you know. Why should God do something that he's commanded us to do? Um, And uh, Paul bears witness to this because uh, in the midst of his own dilemmas about who he is, a wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? But he says, I delight in the law of God after my inward person. That was the reality. He knew God had done it. And he put this desire for holiness within his heart. It was there. It wasn't a make-believe. It wasn't something he should do. It was something he wanted to do. It must mean, I mean, if you're going to write the law in the heart, it can't just mean a different location. It must mean that that heart's now beating to a different tune, mustn't it? So, um, he will, uh, and then God vows to relate. He says, uh, and, um, and I will forgive their sins. From the highest of them to the least of them, I'll forgive their sins. And, and that's right. And he says, and they will all know me from the least of them to the great. How do we know God? When he forgives our sins. Is that what happened to you? I think so many of us would say that that's, you know, we really started to know God. Not when we're running from him. Not when we just heard sermons about him. But when he came to us, we felt the tenderness and knew that his sin, our sins were forgiven. And we were clean. And then we look out of it and say, Father, we know God. And it's a literal fulfilment of Jeremiah 31. So this Jeremiah 31 is a powerful passage of scripture, isn't it? Uh, but just as the first, com- first covenant, um, that is the uh, covenant of law with, made through Moses for Israel, uh, was a covenant of, um, uh, that was got into action, if you like, uh, by the 
by the Passover lamb, you remember the Passover lamb, nobody, nobody survived if they didn't have blood on their door lintels, including Hebrew households. The difference between them was not because they were Hebrews, but because they had blood on their doorsteps, doorposts. Did you follow? You, they, were, they were Hebrews. They weren't just Hebrews. They, were, they did what they were told. That's why they were safe. And uh, so this first covenant doesn't start with thou shalt. It starts with I am. And God had already provided the sacrifice for them. But nonetheless, Jesus says, this is the sacrifice that's going to count. This is the blood of the covenant, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. And he refers to the new covenant, but he interposes his own blood as the way in which the forgiveness of sins will operate. Very powerful. Um, it's interesting that even in the days of Moses, uh, in Deuteronomy 10, I won't look it up, but in Deuteronomy 10 it says, circumcise therefore the, sur- the foreskin of your heart. In other words, I want you not only to do this law, I want you to love it. <laughs> and in fact, when he's actually telling people to give their slaves back uh, into freedom at the end of seven years, he says, you won't send them out empty either because he served you for seven years. He says, I want you to send them back with plenty of food and, and, and money to get cracking again. And then he makes this very interesting comment, this shall not seem hard to you. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> this is not only you'll do it, but you'll like it. <laughs> My mum used to say about eating the cauliflower or something, <laughs> and you'll like it. And that's interesting that God from the beginning has been interested in a heart fulfilment of his law, not just legalism. Anyway, that's the command in Deuteronomy 10, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. I'm not just interested in physical circle, I'm interested in your heart. But in chapter 30, God says, I'm promising to do this. I'm going to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. That's in Deuteronomy. That's the giving of the law. Isn't it amazing that right from the beginning when law was given, it was understood that God would have to do something in a human heart to make it work. It was never just a code. It came really as a promise. And uh, this is fulfilled um, in Colossians 2. Uh, I don't know anywhere where that promise of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30 verse 6 is fulfilled until you get to Colossians and it actually says uh, that Christ, we are circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. In other words, Christ was where your sin got cut off from your heart. You try and eradicate your own sin, you're up against it. You have to know that Christ has become your sin and you have to know that when he was up on that cross, your sin got cut off. It's that real, it's that personal uh, and it's that, that um, definite and final. If we're not, we're all going to be mucking around with sin. We're never going to deal with it. Only Christ can deal with your sin and my sin and he's done it. You have been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ in the putting off of the flesh. So Christ fulfills his own promise in Deuteronomy 30 by uh, giving up his son to our sins and their consequence. And that's where sin gets cut off so that we don't actually want it anymore. That's why I say our desire for holiness is real. And as I'm saying, it's hopeful these promises are part of the new covenant that God makes when, he's, uh, when his earlier covenant had been broken. 
That is, the sin of Israel was written with a pen of iron on their hearts. And it is this covenant that Jesus puts into action. Just before his death, we've been through it, he gives his followers a cup of wine, which is a deliberate you know, um, linking in with the Passover, but he also says it's the blood of the covenant. When we take the cup he offers, that is, if what do you actually do when you go to church and you take communion with all the other brothers and sisters? What are you really doing? I think if we really got a real vision of what was happening, we'd have trouble getting the wine down. The people who first heard it, uh, not, not at the actual celebration of the Passover, but in John 6, isn't it? He says, how can he give us his blood to eat? It was offensive. I mean, would it be something if somebody offered you a kidney, if you were short of a good kidney? That'd be something, wouldn't it? You'd be grateful. What about they give you their blood? Just going to drink it down? Yeah, Sunday. Or should you have a lump in your throat? That's something for someone to die for you, isn't it? Um, if we take this cup that he offers, if we, that is, if we entrust ourselves wholly to what he does when he dies for us, God will fulfill the promise because it's all part of the covenant, you see. Jeremiah 31 if we entrust ourselves wholly to what he does when he dies for us, God will fulfill the promise he makes to forgive our sins. This is the blood of the covenant. What he said, I will forgive their sins and they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. It will enable us to know him and his law will be written on our hearts. It all happens there together, doesn't it? It's not just he forgives our sins. He never just forgives our sins. He's not just interested in wiping a slate clean. He's interested in putting something decent there. So he says, I'll, 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 I'll write my law in your hearts. Now that we'll fix the problem. We'll be reconciled. You and I will be thinking the same things. You know, I want you to be holy and you want to be holy. So we'll be on the same page. Uh, how is it going to happen? Well, I'm going to forgive your sins. Do you see? It's with a view to something, isn't it? Um, God will fulfill the promise he made and forgive our sins, enable us to know him, and his law will be written on our hearts. That's, that's all part of what was happening. Uh, we will pray the Lord's Prayer with enthusiasm. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's something, isn't it? To pray that prayer. So Jesus must do for us what we won't and can't do for ourselves. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, strength and our neighbours ourselves. But we don't. Love a lot of other things. And we should suffer God's judgment for our failure. And we can't do this without being destroyed forever. But because, I'm sorry, I'm over the page, because we share with Christ in his body and blood, that is, in what he does with his body and blood, it's not just taking the, the cup or just taking drinking blood or something, like that. It's, it's, being, it's embracing, it's letting, taking into yourself what he's doing and saying, Lord, yeah, uh, me too, I want to be in. Um, and um, we will want to live as his people, and he will forgive all that's happened beforehand. Here's how this is spelt out by the apostles. That is how the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 is spelt out by the apostles because it's raised on a number of occasions. First of all in Hebrews, then in Second Peter, and third in a couple of places 
uh, of Paul's letters. Uh, first of all, the, um, the letter to the Hebrews tells us that we're forgiven completely. Hebrews is just a, a lovely letter, isn't it? I remember just coming alive to all of that at one stage and just read this book and I thought, golly, I don't think I've ever read this before. It was just so rich. As it is, 8.6, God, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. What's the promise? The promise that he will write his law on your heart. That's a promise. Interesting, isn't it? So God's not just going to be with us when we're feeling well, unwell. He's not just going to help us solve a, a, a marital or a family problem. Uh, God is going to write his law in your heart. He's going to have you a holy person. How about that? That's a real promise, isn't it? It goes to the heart of things. And the reason why this is so, if you go down to verse 10 to 12, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. He quotes Jeremiah 31. After those days, I'll put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. They shall not teach each one each, each their neighbour, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Why? For, it's a Greek word for hoti, which means for, for, this is the reason I will be merciful to their iniquities. It's a, it's a marvellous thing. I'll be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So, we are completely forgiven. Our sin has been put away. If you go down to verse 26, uh, is it uh, 9.26? Sorry, 9. Uh, it's spelled out in quite a lot of detail in uh, 9.14 to 26, and we'll just look at that. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish? That is astonishing. He's bearing our sins, but he's doing it as someone that is completely worthy to do it. What a, what a, uh, what a mixture. Sins of the world. Blameless. He's a spotless sacrifice doing that job. I don't know how to put my mind around that, but he offered himself without blemish to God. How will that not purify our conscience from dead works? There's the cleansing action that goes on. The blood washes you clean. You don't want that stuff anymore. Not just you're forgiven with a box ticked in heaven, but you don't want it. The pen of iron that wrote sin on your heart has now written something different on your heart. How much more will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God? Sin has effectively been put away in God's terms. So the sacrifice Jesus offers to God for our sins turns a light on inside. You struggle to know how to say it, don't you? But it turns a light on inside of our conscience. We can stop endlessly debating with ourselves about what we've done. How we consciences go backwards and forwards, and right, wrong, right, wrong, fix it up, can fix it up. So on it goes and on it goes. We can stop inventing ways to appear righteous. Instead, our cleansed conscience can tell us what to run from and what to give ourselves to. We connect as it's meant to. 
instead of being a self-defence mechanism that we use for our own purposes. And when Jesus enters into God's presence on our behalf, we travel there with him. As he says, we have access into the throne of grace. Chapter 4, we're at home with God and we want to please him. That's Hebrews and there's much more besides, of course, but that's part of what our Hebrews breaks open to us, what Christ has done in relation to our forgiveness. And then Second Peter. Uh, as we've seen, Peter's renewed uh, by a covenant promise that uh, related to him very personally at the time of Christ's crucifixion. But here Peter says in Second Peter that there are many um, great and precious promises. I'll just read that, uh, not all of it, but 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. Uh, His divine power. That's good to hear. His divine power. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Is that the sense of adequacy with which we come at our Christian life? Or just bumbling? Well, frankly, we bumble. But do we live uh, in the light of our own bumbling? Or do we live in the light of God's promise? You've got a choice to make there. We're probably either doing one or the other. What have you said about me, Lord? I know what I feel about myself. Well, that's not the question. What did you say about me? You said, I'll make it. Do do you follow? You've got a choice to make as to who you listen to there, haven't you? Your own conscience or God's word. His divine power has granted all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious, very great promises that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. I mean, how high does it get? Having escaped from the corruption, there's the putting away of sin. Not just forgiven, but put away. We don't want it anymore. Of course we fail. But who's counting the failures? Not God. He's wanting us to look at his promise, not at our performance. Escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire and uh, they enable us to share with what God is actually like. Now, Peter's not suggesting we be lazy. lazy. He urges us to give everything we have to pleasing God. Add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge. Well, we're doing that right now. Uh, I trust you've tried to do some good things this last week, so you've added some faith, it's virtue to your faith. Well, now we're adding some knowledge to our, you know, add faith to you and then to your knowledge and to your knowledge add brotherly kindness, to your brotherly kindness add love. For if these things be in you, you shall not be unfruitful in the work of the Lord. So, do you see, we, we're, we're, in the, we're in the game, aren't we? So, far from just sitting back and saying, oh, God's got it all covered. No, when you're in it, you're in it. Do you know what I mean? When you know God, you're looking at him, you, your whole being. He's written it on your heart, this is now what you want. And so you want to be up with God in doing what he's wanting it to be, to, to, for you to be about. So, he urges us to give all that we have to the pursuit of holiness. All this takes work, but we've got the enthusiasm for it because we know God is reliable 
And he's guaranteed that our godliness is going to happen. On the other hand, if we don't do this, Peter says, I like this, if these things are not in you, you have not failed, you have forgotten. Did you see that? He doesn't just remonstrate. He takes them back to the gospel, which is where the action happens. You have forgotten that you were cleansed from your old sins. If you remember that your sins are forgiven and are being forgiven and always will be forgiven, you'll have the up and go to add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge and to your knowledge temperance and to your temperance love brotherly. Do you, do you know what I mean? You'll want it. The key is to remember the word of God above the word of your own conscience. I can hear Luther saying that. <laughs> and uh, very important. We've not just had an experience of forgiveness, we've met the person who forgave us. I love that Revelation chapter 3. Uh, it's written to the what we might call the worst of the seven churches, the, the um, Laodicean church that had lost their first, that had not just lost their first love like the first one, but actually had were neither cold nor hot. And effectively, Jesus Christ says about this church, you make me sick. Uh, literally, I want, I'd like to spew you out of my mouth. Um, and then he says, uh, he talks to them about, I counsel you to, uh, no, he, he says, uh, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Laodicean church. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. You're only one door away from total intimate fellowship with Christ when you're a lukewarm church. It's not a long process back. It's like that. That's the love of Christ. That's the power of the gospel. And dare we not forget it. It's where we need to be as churches as well as people, isn't it? Third, Paul tells us um, how to hold, how bold this can make us. And uh, here's his uh, quite um, fulsome spelling out to Corinthians, fulsome spelling out of the new covenant. I don't think he actually mentions that it's the new covenant, but it's a clear reference to it because it's written on our hearts that he's referring to. Um, But 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, verses 4 to 18, and we won't read all of that either, but just to make reference to it. There's no life in just having instructions. Uh, Have you found that to be true? There's no life in just having instructions. Just even try it as a parent. You just can't give orders all the time, can you? You've got to provide a frame of reference in which obedience for the child is a real option. Isn't that right? Uh, just in giving instructions. I told you so. No, that's not going to cut it. There has to be a frame of reference in which obedience is realistic for the child, in which there's all of the preparation for it and the rewards for it and the, and the acceptance in the family, whether they make it or not, and, and all those things that are a part of how it actually works. Um, so there's no life, in, and it would that our society would actually realise that? You just don't make a kind society by passing laws about being kind. We're trying to do it all the time. And it's just dividing us instead of motivating us. Is that true? 
And uh, I'm not saying that we just pull our society apart and complain about it. I'm, I'm saying we've got a gospel. We know better. We've got something. And I think we're going to find a lot of tired and jaded people who've only been given restru- instructions about what's kind and good and right and there's no power to actually perform it. And we've got a gospel. And uh, it was wonderful to be able to go out into a world like that that's so tarnished and to have something so rich. The world is handing out instructions all the time, but there's no power to put love into people's hearts. The promise we are living in under is actually the outshining of God's glory. 2 Corinthians, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. Nothing small happening there. They've shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is what happened to Paul on Damascus Roads, what happens to us when we see who God is towards us. And while we keep looking at Christ rather than ourselves, we're being changed from one degree of glory to another. So says Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. How about that? We are being changed from one degree of glory to another when, as we behold the Lord, there's Paul spelling out the promise that God made way back in Jeremiah's day when he was speaking to people whose sin was so deep, God called it graven with a pen of iron. And he says, no, I'm going to write my law in their hearts and that'll be written deeper and it will work. Um, Paul tells us um, in another place, in 2 Corinthians, another, uh, sorry, in Romans, I beg your pardon, another lovely passage of scripture and I'll just refer to it each of these could be just the subject of a sermon in themselves couldn't they uh, Romans 8 chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 um, where he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus remember he's just gone back over how he longs for the law of God it's a holiness passage um, but he can't make it uh, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life. I didn't mention the prophecy in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36, which is parallel to the New Covenant, where God says, I will put my Holy Spirit in them and they will want to keep my commandments when I give them my spirit. That's another parallel promise to the covenant, new covenant promise in Jeremiah. But here he says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the fear of sin and death. For God has done. Have you heard that? Have you really heard that? God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, would not do, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. All the condemnation that you and I deserve, it's happened. And we need to take our communion. And we need to get a lump in our throat. And we need to say, yes, me too, Lord. And then let the peace that passes understanding the peace that comes from this promise about what God's about, uh, get into our hearts. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he's condemned sin in the flesh in order, reason, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Law, written on our heart. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And he goes on and talks about what it means to walk in the spirit. With hope like this, we have every reason to embrace the thought of being God's holy people. We'll never be sure of ourselves. That reference in in Revelation 3, it does include, you say that you are rich and that you've prospered, and you don't realise that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. Is that just the Laodicean church? Or is that every church? The problem with the Laodicean church was not that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. That's the story of being a human being. The problem with the Laodicean church was they didn't know it. But if you understand, you say, why does Jesus begin his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. High and mighty, who've got their discipleship all worked out. They don't get a show. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So, if we know that we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked, we know it, then the promise of Jesus comes, I'm standing at the door knocking. We need to know who we are and we need to know who Jesus is. Um, We have every reason to embrace the thought of God's holy people, of being God's holy people. We'll never be sure of ourselves, but we'll always be confident we can live as his beloved people. Beloved people. There's a couple of references to check on there as well. It's a good life, isn't it? It's a good God. So let's just give thanks. Our dear Father, how do we live without a gospel? Our society's trying to, and it's trying to be kind and good and reasonable and uh, dividing us and, um, and making us uh, harsher rather than kinder. Our dear Father, we thank you that you've granted to us a gospel that's so rich and it's so powerful and that you yourself, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ stand to hear as the guarantor and the Holy Spirit stand guarantor of your promise that you will write your law in our hearts while we know that we're forgiven and that all of your will will be accomplished and that the last day we shall stand faultless before you. We know that job's not finished and will be finished then, but we thank you, Father, for the hope that you've put in our hearts. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.